open in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1. Thank you so much for joining us. For those who are here at the building, those who are joining us online, I want you to know we're glad that you are here with us and that we can open God's Word together. I hope that uh, you have been listening and uh, I learned something this morning. I learned Estonied and I uh, appreciate that. I, I just thought as you were going through that text, I've been thinking uh, this week about the fact that um, I have not had a haircut in some time and yet I continue to be uh, broadcast around the world. And so I just hope that no one is Estonied at my visage uh, this morning. So uh, I, uh, I promise I will get a haircut as soon as that is possible. Uh, but uh, I appreciate, uh, appreciate Richard in those words to help us uh, see some thoughts about Jesus and, and Jesus' appearance on the cross uh, that certainly are sobering and uh, provoke some thought about what he suffered for us. Philippians 1 and verse 12. Let's read there. Philippians 1 and verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So Paul says his imprisonment, and there are differing theories as to where Paul is as he writes Philippians, whether he is in Caesarea, that part of Acts where he's stuck there in Caesarea in prison, or whether he's in Rome uh, waiting to visit Caesar. He says, my imprisonment has surprisingly advanced the gospel. We would think the opposite. We would assume that locking up one of the most powerful preachers and apostles would limit the gospel and restrict it and be a major blow to the cause, maybe even the end to Paul's ministry. But actually, it says in verse 13 here, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. That is, everybody who is in charge of guarding him, the special guards of, of Caesar had a special rank. But not only them, he says in verse 13, to all the rest, that is, everybody else who's observing, it has become known that my imprisonment is for Christ. And that last phrase intrigues me. Yours might have something like, my imprisonment is in Christ, or I'm in Christ. But the idea of being imprisoned for Christ, on one level, the idea is, Paul is saying, everybody knows now that I'm not in prison because I'm bad. I didn't do something evil, and that's the reason for my imprisonment. It's for some other reason. It has to do with my connection to Christ. And on another level, though, the way Paul behaves himself in prison is deeply impressive so that people know that this is something where he is working and believing and he is praying and teaching. And as, as the guards around him begin to have some conversations with him as they see him, maybe even interact before some of the leaders, they start to say, there's something different about Paul. you got to hear this guy. He's not like the other prisoners. He's somebody who there's something special and unique about. And so the message begins to spread, and people begin to say, maybe there's more going on here than just a guy who got thrown in jail. And so they begin to see, my imprisonment is for Christ. But on even another level, and this is the level I want to focus on this morning, as Paul lives in a difficult circumstance in a way that honors Jesus as he suffers for Christ, then his imprisonment is for Christ. Wherever he is, he's going to live there for Christ. So if I have to be in prison, I'm going to be in prison for Christ. We talked last week about what he says a little later in chapter 1, the idea that God, Christ will be glorified in my body, wherever I am. Whatever situation I'm in, I want Christ to be honored in my body. And so, if I have to be in prison, let me be in prison 
for Christ. So I've been thinking this week about Paul in prison because I think his circumstances relate a little bit to ours. Uh, Over the last month or so, it's actually been five weeks or so, uh, our ordinary lives have been suspended. Our economy has been really, really tanking. Our jobs, some of them have been lost or altered. Our families have been altered. Our lifestyles have been altered. There are things that we can't do that we'd like to do. We are in a strange new circumstance. And uh, I received a question this week, which was just basically, what are we supposed to do in this time? You know, how do we use this time? And particularly, there are some things that we would normally do that we know God expects us to do, like showing hospitality to others, like teaching others about Jesus, like being salt and light, that it's really difficult to say, how do we do that now? What changes about the fact that we are in the circumstance we're in? And so what I thought we would say is simply this. If we have to be quarantined, let's be quarantined for Christ. Just like Paul, if I have to be in prison, let me be in prison for Christ. So if I have to be quarantined, let's be quarantined for Christ. Now, when I say quarantine, I think you know what I mean. I'm not just talking about people who have this disease, who have to be separated. I'm talking about all of us who in one way or another are restricted in the things we do. We are outside of our normal routines and lives. And the premise that I'm working with this morning is that there are certain times when our typical obligations are suspended or changed because things are not the way they normally are. And I want to use a couple of biblical examples to talk about that and think what they can teach us about unique circumstances like the one that we live in. Part of the battle here is acknowledging where we are and then asking the question, what can this time best be used for? And that's what I want us to think about for a few minutes this morning. So the first situation we're going to look at, we're going to ask the question, what does Jesus do in the wilderness? Let's go to Luke chapter 4. Luke 4. Just before his ministry begins, Jesus goes into the wilderness. We read a little bit about some of the things that were going on there in Luke 4. Luke 4 and verse 1, it says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. So the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. We see that there in verse 1. Mark actually says that the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. The point here is I'm not sure we can say Jesus has a lot of choice about this. This is not Jesus saying, you know what, before I really get started, I want to take a little vacation want to get out of town a little bit. He is saying, no, this is part of his ministry and part of what God expects him to do. So it's not a decision just to get away. And so it says there in verse one, he is in the, or verse two, he is in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And the being tempted indicates, and Mark's account indicates this as well, that the temptations are not just the three that we read about in Matthew and Luke, you know, the three at the end. This is instead an ongoing thing. 40 days is a long time. Just for a little reference, it's a little short of six weeks. Uh, I mentioned a moment ago, I had to count them up. Five weeks ago, we had regular services on Sunday. Five weeks ago. So it hasn't even been 40 days that we've been dealing with this situation that's impacted us personally. 40 days, Jesus goes, he is living in the wilderness and he eats 
nothing. 40 days is about the longest time a person can go without eating, without permanently damaging their bodies. But there is a lot of precedence for a 40-day time like this, a 40-day fast in Scripture. Moses has a 40-day fast while receiving the law on Mount Sinai. He doesn't eat anything because he's busy. Uh, Elijah has a 40-day fast where he, he eats something that the angel prepares for him, and then he goes 40 days down to Sinai, the same place where Moses had his fast. Elijah has a 40-day fast. Uh, you also know the extreme significance of the number 40 throughout Scripture. Uh, 40 days for the flood, 40 years wandering in the wilderness, 40 days spying out the land, all of that. But Jesus takes this time, 40 days in the wilderness, to fast. And, and I hope you remember, we talked about fasting a, month, a couple of months ago. Fasting in the Bible is not a health thing where we say, you know what, I feel like I've put on a few pounds, I'll just quit eating. Fasting in the Bible is about connecting with God. Fasting in the Bible is about expressing emotion and requesting things from God. So when you see Jesus doing this in the wilderness, you need to see that what Jesus is doing is fighting personal battles and preparing himself for ministry. He is fasting to connect with God. So Jesus, as he does this, faces down temptation. Let's look in verse 3. Luke 4 and verse 3. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So he faces the devil, being tempted for 40 days, and at the end of the 40 days there are these three temptations, specific formal temptations. And I hope you notice that in response to each temptation, Jesus quotes Scripture. It is written. Not only does he quote Scripture, he quotes from Deuteronomy every time. And there has to be something to that, because each one of these statements he quotes, whether it is, man shall not live by bread alone, or whether it is, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only, or you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Each of those are lessons learned during the time that we've been studying about in our daily devotionals, the time in which the Israelites are wandering in the desert, preparing to go into the land. So let's put that together. Jesus is in the wilderness, just like Israel was in the wilderness. Jesus faces temptation, just like Israel faced temptation. Only Jesus responds with the lessons Israel should have responded with, the things they should have known and should have learned not putting God to the test, only worshiping God and him, him alone, living by the bread that comes from the mouth of God. In fact, some people have suggested that all of this is just really about Jesus showing what Israel should have been in this time in the wilderness. But he faces down Satan in a very personal battle where he says, Jesus, do this and you can have this. And Jesus says, no, it is written. 
The other thing you can see here is that Jesus is preparing for his ministry. I think we have to see that part of what is happening here is that before Jesus can begin to preach and teach to others, before he can start healing, doing the work for which he's going to atone for the sins of mankind, he has something he has to do in facing Satan himself. So there is a time here, 40 days, special time, reserved time, in which Jesus fights his personal battles and gets ready to serve. So let me come to my point. The reason I bring up this scene is that Jesus is in the wilderness, and it's not really his choice, but it's necessary. It's a time where there is work to be done. It's just a different kind of work than what's about to happen. Wilderness time is not a time for Jesus' duties in relating to people. Wilderness time is not a time for compassion. It's not a time for serving. Does that mean serving and compassion are unimportant or not what God wants? No, it's just not right now. You can't do that when you're in the wilderness alone. In fact, it seems tragic to me to think that Jesus might waste the wilderness time just by being sad and saying, you know what, I feel lonely. I wish I had people here with me. Or, you know what, I think I'm going to cut short this time and go in and serve some people. After all, I'm here to serve. No, he is here, not really of his own choice, and he is here to do a work to prepare him for what will come later. So he fights his personal battles and he prepares for his ministry. It does not mean that this time is a waste. It does not mean that at all. There is another very important work he can do that is much more personal than what he will do later on. And it also does not mean that later on he won't serve other people. Definitely, we know of Jesus as fundamentally a servant. It's just that now is not that time. So I hope you can see some of the parallels I'm trying to draw. That in some ways we are like Jesus in that we're in a position that's not really entirely of our choice. And much of it has to do with things that are beyond our control. And so we can easily say, I wish I could do this. I can't do this. I can't do this instead of focusing on what we can do, that there are important things we can achieve even in times where we're restricted from what we would normally do. I see in Jesus seizing a moment to do something vitally important, even though there are other also important things that he restricts himself from for a little while. The second scene I want to look at has to do with where we began. Uh, What does Paul do in prison? What does Paul do in prison? So in the book of Acts, in fact, let's go to the book of Acts. We're going to start in chapter 24, Acts 24. Paul is arrested in Jerusalem, and uh, he's involved in a series of venue changes, to put it lightly, uh, that end up eventually with him in Rome several years later. And so the question is, what does Paul do with that time? If you've thought about it and you think about yourself, what would you do with time like this where you know you've been wrongfully arrested and accused and you're in a position where you're limited in what you can do from what would be normal, what would you do? And then think about what does Paul do? So first of all, I want you to see how Paul tries to use his situation to produce gospel opportunities. Acts 24 and verse 24. It says, After some days Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. So Felix is the governor. Paul is a prisoner. 
And he sends for Paul to hear about faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away from the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So after he has made his defense, and if you've studied this part of the book of Acts, you know that when Paul makes his defense of himself, it is kind of a a defense of himself and a defense of Jesus all rolled into one. He likes to put those things together. And it seems that Felix is intrigued by that. And so he calls for him on a separate occasion, says, tell me about Jesus. And so he does. And they begin to talk about righteousness and self-control and the judgment. And Felix gets scared. And he says, I don't want to talk about this anymore. And so he sends away, but eventually he does come back, but it doesn't seem to go very well. Now, I want you to think about that. This is probably not ideal for Paul. I mean, this is not an ideal gospel opportunity, is it? You've got a governor who, with a flick of his wrist, can say, "Uh, I'm done with you. You're a prisoner. Go back to your cell. You also have a governor who is looking for a bribe. We learned that there in, uh, let's see, verse 26. There is also the possibility that Felix will equate being a Christian with this kind of suffering. I mean, after all, if you become a Christian, you might end up like Paul. Instead of being the governor, you may be the prisoner. So in all of these ways, it's not ideal. And yet, Paul tries anyway. Where I am, the situation I'm in, the opportunities I have, I'm going to try to use my situation to produce gospel opportunities. Turn the page over to 26, Acts 26. He does the same thing in this situation before Festus and Agrippa. And I want you to notice how he particularly zeroes in on Agrippa. Acts 26, 24, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. So Paul, I just see him, he's preaching generally, and then he knows Agrippa, and he zeroes in on Agrippa. You believe, I know you believe. And he says, are you trying to persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul says, I don't care how long it takes, I wish everybody would be what I am, except I wish they weren't prisoners. I don't want them to be prisoners like I am, except for these chains. You see what he's doing. Everything that Paul is doing is geared toward maybe this will be an opportunity. And so he uses even his situation to get him there. Paul is on a ship a little later in the book of Acts. And that ship, he he engages with the the, uh, owner and the leaders of the uh, expedition, the centurions. He's always trying to talk them into understanding and respecting his opinion And parlay that into, maybe they'll hear me about God. And eventually he does win them over in that sense. But we don't read any record of them obeying the gospel. 
When he gets to Rome, he calls for the Jews of that area to come talk to him. They haven't heard anything about being a Christian, and so they visit him under house arrest. And as we've already noticed, the guards that are guarding him hear about Jesus from him. Everywhere he goes, he uses those situations to make gospel opportunities. That's how Paul spends his prison time. He does not stop preaching just because he's in a difficult situation. I also want you to see that Paul thinks about his situation and his attitude. Let's go over to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3. Philippians, of course, is written from uh, this confinement, as we've already noted. But Paul is doing some processing as he sits and as he waits, as there are things that are outside his control. And he is processing his Christian walk through the lens of being in prison. And I want you to notice, we're just going to read part of this in Philippians 3 and verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained this, meaning the resurrection, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. So even in prison, he talks about striving and straining because, please hear me, Paul is still on his quest and nothing about his situation changes his goals. His goals are the same. He is still focused on Jesus and the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So we could be in difficult situations, but we need to understand and process that nothing has changed about who we are and where we're headed. Nothing. Same mission, same goal, same passion. Turn the page to Philippians 4. Philippians 4 and verse 10, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I speak of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So he's talking in part here about money. That, you know, I had need and you've sent for my needs. You helped me. But also I can't help but seeing this as a function of where he is. He is in prison. And by going through hard times like this, Paul has learned contentment. He has learned, I can learn things from my circumstances. I don't just have to be a victim of them. I can be content whatever they are. He is learning what really matters about his life. And he says in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He is learning how being a Christian changes how we deal with our circumstances. So then he will be a model to others about how to go through hard times. You know, if Paul can go through that and remain content, how can I not deal with my small changes in circumstance with contentment? Paul is determined to deal with this well. He thinks about his situation and he thinks about his attitude. It will not derail his faith. It will not consume his life. He will not be full of anxiety. He talks about that in verse 6. He will keep thinking on good things. He talks about that in verse 8. I am going to remain the same person. I refuse to let my situation bring me down. And if Paul can say that after years in prison for reasons he can't really explain, 
how can we not in situations we are in? That's what Paul spends his time doing, thinking about his situation and his attitude. But you know, most of all, what Paul does while he's in prison is he writes letters. He writes letters to encourage his brethren. He writes Ephesians, telling those Christians, I'm praying for you, I'm thinking about you. He encourages them to grow up in Christ, put off the old man, put on the new man, live out Christ in your relationships. He writes Colossians. He says, I'm praying for you, I'm concerned about you, even though I've never met you. Just heard about you, got some things I'm concerned about. He writes Philemon, telling Philemon that a runaway slave has come to him. He's converted him. Remember gospel opportunities, even in prison. He's converted him. Now he's sending him back, urges him to receive him as a brother. He writes Philippians, the letter we've been reading from, telling them rejoice in the Lord always. I've learned in whatever state I'm in to be content and not anxious. He writes 2 Timothy, where he tells Timothy, you keep preaching the word. I'm going to be gone soon, but you'll not. I know I'm about to die. You take up that mantle when I'm gone. Letters to encourage brethren. Now, this is interesting because this is not Paul's preferred method of talking to other Christians. Paul much prefers dealing with people face to face. In fact, he says that in a couple of places. Uh, This is Colossians. I mentioned this a moment ago. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So there's a concern there that if I haven't seen you and you don't know me, it's going to be a lot harder for you to take me seriously and understand me just because I wrote you a letter. He also says, this is 1 Thessalonians 2.17, Since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavor the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. This is a situation where, because of persecution, he had to leave new disciples. And he says, we miss you. We can write you all the letters in the world, but we want to see you face to face. That's what Paul would have preferred. So when he is in prison and he can't see people that he wants to see, it's not ideal. We know that in this situation, he is thinking about his brethren all the time because we know he's always praying for them. We've talked about that a lot in the last couple of weeks. But he wants to see them, so he writes. And an amazing thing happens. You know, if Paul had just had all face-to-face conversations, we would not have a New Testament, not in the way that we have it. An amazing thing happens. Paul's less-than-preferred mode of communication becomes the seeds for our New Testament. Suddenly his words are preserved and compiled and bless future generations, including you and me. So Paul uses this situation to produce gospel opportunities. He thinks about his situation and his attitude and he writes letters to encourage his brethren. Wouldn't it be tragic if Paul had used this time and said, I am just so depressed. I just can't see anybody. I just can't serve like I used to. I'm just so sad because I can't see my brethren. Instead, he uses his time. He focuses on what he can do, and he serves others. There is a a book, a nonfiction book, uh, that I, I particularly love and was struck by this illustration from the book. 
And the author is using this to, to demonstrate the very thing I want to highlight, the difference in focusing on what you can do and what you can't do. And the author tells about how his eight-year-old son uh, broke his arm while on the first day of football practice. And so after a few days, uh, he really got into a negative spiral where this eight-year-old boy was talking about all the things he can't do anymore uh, because he's broken his arm. And so his dad, the author, says, I want you to make a list. He told him, I'll write, because he couldn't write because his arm was broken. But he said, I want you to make a list of 21 things you can do with one arm. And so, you know, the kid was reluctant. Finally, he starts listing some things. He said, I can read books, can ride my bike, which is kind of scary for an eight-year-old riding a bike with one arm, but uh, ride my bike, watch TV, play video games. And as he, as he went through the list, he got more and more excited. He said, I could hike or run. I could play in my treehouse. I could go to the movies. Of course, we can't do that right now. I could eat popcorn, have M&Ms. I could do science experiments. I could do sit-ups. I could take a bath. I can make my bed. And they get to 21. He keeps going. He goes all the way to 35. Finally, he's ready to stop. And the dad says, now, wait a minute. Do you think we can make a list that long of all the things you can't do? And the kid says, well, sure, but why would anybody want to do that? That idea where we talk about and focus on what we can't do, what it does is it depresses us. It demotivates us. And I am suggesting that if we have to be quarantined, let's be quarantined for Christ and think about what we can do with the time and opportunities we have. So I want to take just a minute and ask the question, what can we do? What can we do right now? Well, first of all, like Jesus, we can work on personal growth. We can fight our battles with Satan. We can prepare ourselves, like Jesus, for mission and for ministry. Maybe not in a way that we can immediately see the fruit of, but we're laying the groundwork for what is to come. This time is not going to last forever. We will not be in the situation we are in right now forever. Instead, there will be times where we are able to do much more in a more focused way, to engage with people in a much clearer and more direct way. So what can we use this time for in preparation for that time? We can prepare ourselves for mission and for ministry. There is time and space now that we probably didn't have a month or two ago. Time and space now for Bible study and for prayer and for meditation and for fasting. Time and space for personal growth. Opportunities right now to face our spiritual shortcomings head on. Look at it, talk about it, think about it, make a plan, work through it, study on it, pray about it so that we can face it down and be rid of them. I am impressed by the fact that Jesus takes these temptations and says, I'm going to look straight at it and I'm going to say no to it in this time where I don't have any other distractions. It's just me and Satan. These are opportunities we have that are like that. There are chances we have right now to make everyday improvements where there's not as many distractions and worries and concerns in terms of the commitments on our time. So we can make everyday improvements like an attitude adjustment or a certain behavioral change. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to think that way anymore. I don't want to be this way anymore. We alter our thought patterns. or Maybe we work on our speech. 
We say, I want to talk to people in this way, or when I'm engaging online, or I'm writing emails, or I'm text messaging, whatever I'm doing, I'm going to be careful not to be this, not to gossip, not to say negative things, not to be hard on people, not to exaggerate, whatever it is, I'm going to work on this right now, and personally, I'm going to grow. I can work on a Bible perspective on this crisis. And when I say a Bible perspective, I am speaking specifically in contrast to a political perspective. I am just astonished at the fact that somehow what's gone on with this virus has become political. This is not a political issue. And as God's people, we need a Bible perspective. What does God think? What does God want? What should I do to draw closer to God? And I can hone that perspective. Let me help. Life is a vapor. I will live without fear. I will try to serve and be thankful for others who serve. I will respect my leaders even when I disagree with them. I'm going to ask the question, what can I learn from this crisis? How can I be thankful? How can I live above the circumstances I'm in? What can I rejoice about? That's a Bible perspective. Those are Bible concepts. And I'm going to apply them to my life and say, I'm going to change the way I think about this right now. So just like Jesus, we can't have the same level of contact as normal. Jesus didn't have the same level of contact with people as normal when he was in the wilderness. That will come. But what we can do is devote this time to drawing closer to God. How tragic if we only spend all this time lamenting what we miss and then completely ignore what we have, which is a golden opportunity to grow. What can we do right now? We can encourage others and create gospel opportunities. I'm going to give you just a few ideas here uh, about how we can do that in a time like what we're living in in the moment. First of all, I can check on my neighbors. I can stand in the doorway because some of our neighbors are not going to be interested in coming out and talking, getting within six feet of us, stand in my doorway and talk with them. You might have noticed that lawns are getting taller, so there might be an opportunity for service in some way, especially those who are older in our area. Just ask how they're doing. Just ask if we can help. In fact, I have found this is a great time where people's guard is down a little bit because we are all dealing with the same things. So it's a lot easier to have a conversation because the conversation can just be, how are you doing with this? And everybody's dealing with it, so everybody has an answer. And we all like to be asked how we're doing. So have a conversation. Build a bridge with someone. I can check on the elderly. I can buy them what they need, whether we're talking about the elderly here in our congregation, the elderly in our area, people that we know. Can make sure that they are connected to other people, that somebody is watching on the, uh, looking in on them, taking care of them. Uh, some of our elderly, whether that's in the church or outside, need help with their groceries, with their prescriptions. You know, we're, we're reaching a point where things have to be renewed. We're, we're over a month in. And so there are things that maybe initially were fine and now they've gotten to be a little more desperate. Some are confused and struggle with new technologies. Especially, you know, we're live streaming everything. We need to make sure our people know how to do that and know how to get on, know how to stay in touch uh, with others. How can I encourage others and create gospel opportunities? I can write cards and I can make calls. 
Don't have to be an agenda to the cards and calls. Just, I wanted to let you know I'm thinking about you. I wanted to see how you're doing. I was asked specifically about hospitality. Uh, Hospitality literally means, that word means love of strangers. And usually we associate hospitality with uh, having people in our home. That comes from, excuse me, that comes from the idea back in the, in the Bible, there not being a lot of hotels everywhere. So if somebody is in a, a strange place, you invite them in and you let them stay in your home, spend the night. But, you know, people staying in our home or even coming in our home isn't really on the radar at the moment. Uh, people are not going to be willing to do that, comfortable doing that. It's also something that's probably not going to be the best course. But if the word means love of strangers, it just seems to me that we can still show kindness and warmth to other people instead of fear. And one of the dangers of this disease is that it may teach us to view other people with suspicion and fear. You know, you, if I get too close to you, you can infect me with something. And so, you know, everybody, the world is full of this potential infection. Things are scary. In fact, I was running down by the river the other day. And uh, I had an older lady yell at me because she thought I was too close to her and, and uh, told me to go way over there. Um, sometimes we get suspicious with people. And sometimes we can, that can lead to us reacting in a way that we wouldn't in a normal situation. But if I show warmth and kindness instead of fear, I show love of strangers. Encouraging others, creating gospel opportunities. I can have online interactions with other people. When I say online interactions, I do not mean I'm going to go get into arguments with everybody. That's not what I'm going for here. I mean trying to reach out to people there. There may be some people, I hope you'll think about this, there may be some people that you've lost touch with that you know you need to check on. Maybe there are people who you even think there's a potential to talk about Jesus with them. Guess what? This is a great time to reach out to them because first of all, there's an easy thing to say, which is, I just wanted to see how you're doing through all of this. The second thing is, they have as much downtime as you do. So if your job is making you stay home, or if you have fewer commitments in the evening, so do they. And so it might be a great opportunity for that reaching out. I can check with my coworkers. Is there something I can pray for you about? But most of all, I just think of, I want to be the person who looks for the good in a situation and is going to be a ray of sunshine to the people around me. I want to be somebody who is going to lift the spirits of the people in the room. I want to be the kind of person who makes a difference by being different from the rest of the world. I want to be the kind of person who people can say, he is rejoicing in the Lord. This time can be a blessing. I can be content whatever state I am. And people will notice the difference and they will be encouraged by that, perhaps even intrigued by that. So I hope you see my point. To be sure, the time that we're in is not ideal. We're in a difficult moment. And just like Jesus and Paul, some of our typical obligations are going to be altered or sometimes even suspended in times like these. This is not as much, in my view, a time for intense and close communication and influence on people. It is instead a time where we focus on other things in preparation for when those things are relaxed. But instead of just lamenting that difference, I hope we'll ask the question, what can I do? If we're going to be quarantined, let's be quarantined for Christ so that he's glorified by our behavior and by our growth. 
I hope that you'll take that and you'll think about it. And if there are some things that you need to start doing, that you'll begin as soon as you can. There might be someone who needs to respond to the invitation where we offer this time for you to make your life right with God. We haven't talked this morning about what you need to do to become a Christian, but Scripture clearly teaches that when we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, we're willing to turn away from our sins and be baptized into Christ. We can have those sins washed away, forgiven by His blood. And if you're ready to do that, or you need to make something known to us, we hope that you'll reach out to us. We hope that you'll use the contact form on the website if we can help you and get in touch with us so we can study with you and talk with you more about that. If you're here at the building and you need to come forward, this time is for you as we stand and sing to encourage you.